All right, good morning. Welcome to Salt City, guys. For those of you who I haven't met yet, my name's Drew. I'm one of the pastors here, and we have been going through the book of Exodus for the past several weeks. And I think we're going to run into an important theme this week, and that's because I think one of the misunderstandings that many of us have about Christianity is that sort of the destination of Christianity is actually the beginning of Christianity. So some of us, we think that all that God has for us is that we've put our faith in Jesus, and then we sort of wait throughout our lifetime to go be with Jesus forever in heaven. But I want us to get excited about this reality in our Christian life that God is leading us, that there is a real person to follow, and that it's an exciting adventure worth your entire life. So I was reminded of this reality the other day when I picked my son Gabe up from the bus stop. So it was one of those cold days. I pulled up in my 2010 Honda Odyssey minivan to pick him up, you know, with a little dent in the back that somebody in my family backed into something, but let's not talk about that. But anyway, we, uh, so I, I pull up to pick him up and he gets in the van and I was so excited to tell him that I had a great idea. And I said, Gabe, on the way home, you know, it's like three blocks from our house. Do you want to sit on my lap and help me drive the van on the way home? And so he, he jumped on, on my lap. And, of course, I've got my, my hands on the bottom of the steering wheel. He's got his hands on the top of the steering wheel. So this isn't like a super dangerous situation. He's six, by the way. And uh, so we're driving back to, to the house. And as we're rounding one of these corners, he tries to take like a sharp turn into one of our neighbor's yard. And it it was really easy for me to just kind of steer the van back. But right after he did that, he looks up at me, he's like, dad, good thing you had your hands on the wheel too, or we would be up there. I'm like, yeah. And then it got even more fun because we rounded the corner and some of my son Luke's friends were running towards us. So they walk past the van and they just are like looking over like, is that guy seriously letting his six-year-old son drive? right now. So anyway, it was a a great day for him. But the point is, my son Gabe was so happy that I was driving the van in actuality because he understood that if he wasn't following my leadership, that he would have wrecked the van and there would have been disastrous consequences to that. So I want us to get excited about this reality that as a church and in our individual lives as Christians, that God is leading us. So we're going to see that theme In Exodus chapter 13, we're going to see three implications of it. And the first implication of this reality that God is leading us is we're called to set apart our lives for him. So let's look at this in Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Okay, so remember, last week we saw that Israel has been miraculously saved from the wrath of God and from the tyranny of slavery in Egypt. And now they're being brought into this new adventure. The blood of the lamb was over their doorposts. The wrath of God passed over, so they're simultaneously saved from his just anger and they're saved from being literal slaves. And so now, 
God is calling them to something. And he says, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Now, that word consecrate, it means to set apart as holy. It means to dedicate or to honor as sacred. And there's a specific reason that God is telling them to consecrate their firstborn. And that's because had they not put the blood over the doorpost of their home, their firstborn son and all the firstborn in their family would have died. And so God is saying, because of my salvation of your firstborn, you ought to give everything to me. See, our tendency when God has given us great gifts in our lives is to hold on to those things. We so easily turn the good gifts of God into God's. And we start to rest our hopes and our dreams in God's rescue of us or the things that he gives us rather than in God himself. And so God is saying, I want you to give me your firstborn. Now, in that culture, firstborn would have represented their future because the firstborn son would have been the one who kind of took the baton to provide for the family. It would have been prosperity because in his prosperity, the family would prosper in the future. It would have been glory because the family name was carried on to the firstborn son. And it would have been joy. There was a lot of joy in your, in your firstborn. And so for God to call the Israelites to give him their firstborn was really for him to call, a call for them to give him everything. Which gives us the, this reminder that life itself, everything that we have, all of our talents, all of our gifts, all of our abilities, our families, and everything that we call precious in this life is a sacred gift not to be held on to, but to be given to God as worship. And we've all seen this in our lives. When we try to hang on to things too tightly, it's then that we actually lose them. But when we let go of things and say, God, this is yours, that's when we feel like we truly have them. It's this paradox built into life and built into the Christian life. We see this all, all the time with what we call helicopter parents, okay? Everybody has seen a helicopter parent, right? Where their kid is, is perfectly safe, they're in a perfectly safe environment, they're kind of walking around, and you see this parent just like not enjoying the party or the social event or the school function at all because they're so concerned about this kid. I don't want little Johnny to get hurt. It's like, he's 12. He can go on the monkey bars. It's okay, right? And, and I remember talking to an older guy in the last church that I was a part of. His name was Jim. And he was talking about the difference between the way that he was raised and the way that kids are raised now. You know, older guy in his 70s. You know how these guys talk. And he grew up in Texas and he was talking about when he was eight years old, his mom gave him a 22 pistol and said, go outside and kill a snake or something, get out of the house. And he remembers going outside with this 22 pistol and having all the freedom in the world to go out and shoot stuff and kill stuff and, and do whatever. And, and we see, like, I could just see the joy in him 
Like as a man, maybe that's an extreme example, right? <laughs> but we see that when we let go of something that is precious to us, we actually see that that thing or that person can thrive. And we see that our own heart can relax because it's a form of trusting in God. And, and so my question for you this morning is, what are you holding on to? What is God saying to you, I want you to consecrate this to me. I, I want you to set this apart in your life as holy. I want you to let go of this and let me take care of it so that you don't have to. What are you trying to control? C.S. Lewis said this about this whole reality. He said, the prin this principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with, and with him everything else thrown in. Isn't that line powerful? Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Haven't we found that to be the reality? That the things that we try to hold on to, the things that we turn into God's, the things that God has called us to give away to him, that we try to make ours, never really end up being ours. But the things that we give away, in other words, when God has first place and everything else falls in line, we find that our hearts are ordered and our souls are at rest. And that's because God alone can occupy the place of worship, joy, and adoration in your heart. He is the only one who can satisfy you. And so it's merciful for God to call Israel to set apart what is most precious to them. And it is merciful for him to call us to, to set aside what is most precious to us because that is the pathway to the greatest joy. So the first thing for us to enjoy God's leadership in our life is to set apart our lives to him. The second thing is to remember what he's done. Look with me at verses 3 through 10. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days, no leavened bread shall be eaten with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, 
It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. So Moses is recognizing this reality really early on. Now, keep in mind, the people of Israel have just come out of Egypt, and they have such fresh memory of God passing over their families and graciously taking them out of slavery and even throwing a bunch of jewelry on the top. And they've got this fresh memory, and Moses is telling them something that in that moment to them would have been unthinkable. You're going to forget that this ever happened. You're not going to remember. And he's tapping into something that is so pertinent to our human condition. It's always been a staple. And that's that we forget the work of God in our lives. Even the glorious work. Maybe sometimes it's the most glorious things that we most easily forget. And Moses is saying you need to be purposeful and you need to be intentional about remembering what God has done. Now remember in this context, it means to recall, to be mindful of, to memorialize, and to keep a record of. So he gives them very specific instructions on how to remember. And they're supposed to keep this festival every year. And sort of the central piece of this festival that's mentioned over and over again is that they are to eat unleavened bread. Now, what is it with unleavened bread? Well, the reality of unleavened bread is pertinent to this situation because when they escaped from Egypt, the dough didn't have time to rise. They escaped so quickly and so fast that had there been leaven in the bread, there would have been no time for the dough to rise. So for them to not put leaven in their bread is to remember how quickly God rescued them out of Egypt. There would have been no time to do something as normal and simple as making bread. That's how miraculous Their rescue was from 400 years of slavery. And the reason that God was able to do that is because it was by the strength of his hand that they were rescued. In other words, they're supposed to remember that it would not have been humanly possible for them to escape the tyranny of Egypt. It was the work of God and the work of God alone. And I think sometimes we can start recounting our own stories of salvation, and we sort of give ourselves partial credit for it. And we forget that it's been God's miraculous hand that has been at work in our lives to save us from his wrath and to save us from the tyranny of Satan. And sometimes we need reminders of what he's doing and what he's done. And I think We have a great reminder in our church family of what God is doing and what he's done. And what I mean by that is we've got college students here. 
And here's what I love about having college students in our church, is that often they're experiencing fresh salvation in their lives in a way that many of us have not experienced for a long time. So for example, this week, I was at our office space, and Tony and a guy who's going to be working with Salt St. Paul next year named Parker was in the office as well. And Tony texts me, even though I was like one office away, he could have just looked over and said, come here. But he texted me and said, come in here, you got to hear this. And Parker is sitting there, and he's so excited because Parker plays football, and he's been sharing the gospel with a bunch of guys on the St. Thomas football team. Guys, it's amazing. Sometimes a quarter of the football team is at Salt Company in St. Paul on a given week. There's like revival dynamics happening, like 25 out of 100 guys. And Parker's telling me about a fellow football player who he called out for some sin because the guy was claiming to be a Christian. He's like, you know that sin of sleeping with your girlfriend and drinking and partying, all that. That's never going to satisfy you. And the guy kind of was coming to Salt Company and he was kind of hanging around, but life change wasn't really happening. And just in the last several weeks, it's clicked. And this guy has broken off these sexual and moral relationships and he's stopped drinking. And now he's just like digging into God's word. He's just eating it up. He, he can't get enough of the Bible. And I was reminded as I'm hearing that story, I'm like, that's amazing. But I'm also remembering my own salvation. And I'm starting to like repent of how lukewarm I can become in my own faith. And sometimes we need to hear somebody else's story of fresh salvation so that we can sort of get our perspective changed about what God's done in our lives. We can give him credit and glory for what he's done. And so maybe today, if you're a parent, you need to recount to your kids your own story of salvation. Or maybe as you're eating lunch with people after church that are in your friend group, maybe you need to go around the circle and you just need to share what God has done. And we need to sort of set up this memorial as a church, this week at our connection groups, and we need to share our stories because there's something about remembering what God has saved us from that keeps us from going back to the same sin over and over again. Guys, it's with a strong hand that God has brought us out. So where have you been? Were you an addict before you knew Christ? Were you hopeless, purposeless, sad, lonely, isolated? Let's remember where we've been and then let's remember what God has done. What did it feel like when he was first saving you? What did the Bible look like when you were first reading it? How did it click with you when you first realized that Jesus had paid the penalty for your sin. Okay, so God is leading us, so we're to set apart our lives for him, we're to remember what he's done, and then lastly, we're to follow him into the wilderness. Okay, look with me at verses 17 through 22. It says, When Pharaoh let the people go, 
God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Okay, so the most natural route for the Israelites to have taken out of Egypt would have been toward the land of the Philistines. But here's what God is seeing from his perspective. Although that way is near, it will be evident to the Israelites very quickly that there's also going to be a battle, a war, if they take that route. So even though the Israelites don't have the same perspective, God is looking out for them, and he's telling them, I don't want you to take the easy route. I want you to take the long way. I don't know about you, I don't like the long way. I'd be like, why, why aren't we taking the easy route? But from God's perspective, he can see that if they were to take the so-called easy route, that it would actually be too hard for them too quickly, and it would cause them to turn around and go back to Egypt immediately. He sees the weakness of their faith, and he charts the course for them that is right for them. Now, the wilderness was going to represent its own set of trials and its own set of difficulties, but God is saying, this is what's best for you. So, we see in this both God's mercy in helping them avoid something that they can't handle, and a test of trust. Right away, God is calling them to something that from a human perspective doesn't make any sense. My guess is there's lots of us here that are in a similar situation in our lives. God is leading you on a path and you're sort of looking at what you would consider the near option. And you're kind of bartering with God right now, like, okay, it feels like you're leading me this way, but I'd really like to take this way. And God keeps closing that door. He keeps making that impossible. And he's calling you to something that right now feels harder. And he's asking you not to understand why he's doing what he's doing. He's asking you to trust him. To believe that he has a perspective that you don't have on your life. And to settle into submission to him. I actually see an example of somebody who trusted not just what his eyes could see, but in what God was doing later on in the passage. There's this kind of strange aside where it says that Moses took the bones of Joseph 
with him. And then it gives us the reason why Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones with you from here. Now, think about this. Joseph had lived over 400 years prior to this. Joseph is the one who was enslaved, thrown into captivity by his brothers. Then he went into Egypt, rose to prosperity, was falsely accused of trying to rape one of the Egyptian leader's wives, was thrown into a dungeon, and then rose to power and was the means by which God saved the people of Israel. So he sort of saved them and got them into this mess. And Joseph believed God's promise that one day God would bring his people out of Israel. And and get this, he believed that he would go with them. What a strange thing to believe. And so Joseph died, and you might have thought, what a crazy thing to believe something that doesn't make sense like that. But, but we see a fulfillment of God's promise to Joseph and a reminder in the middle of the people of Israel that it makes sense to trust God, even in the midst of circumstances that don't seem to make sense. So Joseph's bones are carried out of Egypt. And so I think the call for us on our lives is even when things get hard and seem to make no sense, we follow God. And so what does that look like? Here's the advice that I got when, so when my wife Melissa and I um, moved here, we had five kids, my wife was pregnant with our sixth, and God called us kind of in the middle of the busyness of our life and the craziness of our life to move from Iowa City and to move here to help be a part of planting this church. And I remember processing this with one of my mentors, Mark Arendt, who had planted a church himself. And I remember him using this phrase to me to encourage me to take the next step. He said, Drew, you got to burn the ships. And I didn't really need an explanation for that. What he was saying was, you've got to leave everything here behind. You can't look back. If you're going to do something that's this hard and takes this much sacrifice and is this challenging and causes you to trust in God this much, you can't look back. You have to look forward and you have to trust God. Mark Aaron's dad used to always say this to him when he was growing up. The people of God do not live by explanations. They live by promises. That's what Mark was saying to me. God has promised that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you have to believe that even when it doesn't make sense to keep on going. Guys, in what way in your life right now are you looking back and wishing that things were the way that they used to be? 
Or in what way are you looking down and thinking, I wish things weren't the way that they are right now? What if instead of looking back or looking down, we looked up? And we believed that God has us in the place that he has us right now for a purpose. That he's leading us. And that even though it feels like wilderness, and it looks like there would be a better option, that this is the best possible place for us to be. Now, how in the world can we trust that? And we see an answer in this text as we keep reading Exodus chapter 13, verses 20 through 22. This is an amazing reality, I think, is often overlooked about this story. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. Okay, so we can get this idea in our mind, like God is telling the people to go into the wilderness and not to go to the places near, and he's basically like this distant God who's saying, good luck. But here's the reality. Throughout the entire time that the Israelite people were in the wilderness, during the day, there's a pillar of cloud. I sort of picture like a tornado that's not moving during the day. Just lead, like leading them as they went into the wilderness. And at night, that tornado that wasn't moving turned into a fire tornado that wasn't moving. And so there's this miraculous thing that is happening and God's purpose in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire is to say, no matter where I call you to go, this is your constant. I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Here's a reality. We have something better than the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Something that if Moses would have known about or been able to taste, he would have traded what he had for what we have in an instant. We have the Spirit of God living in us. The cloud and the fire is in your heart. And yes, we read God's word. Yes, we trust in God's word. Yes, we believe in God's word, but we do not believe that the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Bible. We believe it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, yes, God speaks to us through his word, but he illumines that word through his spirit so that you can have a personal relationship with God moment by moment throughout your day. And he will call you out for your sin, but he will also comfort you and he will tell you, go this way, not that way. And I think God's call on all of us as he leads us is to re-engage with his spirit. He loves you. He wants to lead you. Not because he's keeping something from you, but because he wants to bring you to the promised land. He wants to take you home moment by moment, day by day.
Let's pray that that would be the reality of our lives. God, thank you that in the midst of this wilderness, you have not left us. You have not forsaken us. That yes, you've rescued us from the tyranny of our sin and from God's wrath, but you have also left us with your spirit. And I pray that we would be able to hear your voice. That even when our circumstances are screaming at us and seem to be saying that you are not good or you do not have our best in mind, that we would be able to hear you whisper and to say to us, you're my child. I love you. I am with you. Keep on going. Pray this all in Jesus' good name.